I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. There is so much that I want to say about this episode. It is the final episode in season two and is basically a conversation between a parent, Ginny Barker, who raised her kids in the height of the culture wars, and someone, me, who grew up in the height of the culture wars. If you're unfamiliar with the culture wars, I was introduced to this term fairly recently. A very brief explanation is the era of evangelicalism that was hell-bent on protecting their kids from being corrupted by the world. This led to a rise in Christian schools, homeschooling, and basically became the glory days of the white evangelical conservatism. This parenting movement emphasized submission to authority and an overemphasis on sinfulness. Some communities took this really far, and as we will get into in the episode, some of these methods resulted in child abuse. But the greatest fallout, in my personal opinion, was an entire generation of people who follow authority at all costs, especially parental and spiritual authority, and who distrust their bodies and intuition. This then has led to the rampant abuse we now are uncovering in the church. This is what I call a can of worms episode. It's the sort of episode that starts the conversation, but there is so much more to discuss. So we hope you'll come back for season three in January. We also hope you will join us at Tears of Eden's virtual gala on November 6th. This is a time for us to share a little more about Tears of Eden and share a little bit about our hopes and dreams for this community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. We are also going to be giving away some fun swag to anyone who gives donations between now and November 6th. You can sign up to receive a reminder email on the day of the gala by selecting the link in the show notes. Now, here's the season finale and my interview with my friend, Ginny Barker. So I am excited to have this conversation with you. I am just by way of preparation. I'm very weepy today, so I might cry in this conversation. I've been thinking about it all day. And ever since we've been talking about it on Facebook and emailing a little bit, and I feel like you're a little closer to my mother's age. And then I feel like I'm probably a little closer to your kid's age. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like this might be the conversation that I wish I could have with my mom. Yeah. And still hope that someday I will be able to have with her. Yeah. So you've been doing a lot of exploring in the area of the pressure put on parents to do things the right way. And so, yeah. And, and it's, it's been bad. It's been bad. My entire parenting career, if you call parenting a career, but I mean, when my second child was, was a baby, I remember picking up a book called motherhood stress because it was, even then it was stressful, but it was nothing like what it became later. Interesting. What was it like for before? And then what was, what, what did it become later and why did the stress? I think, well, I think, I think the, t- the timing, you know, I should probably go back and preface this by saying I have four children 
born between 1990 and 1996. So yeah, uh, uh, four kids in six years. I'm not really sure what we were thinking, you know, especially when you think about, yeah, that did include one year where all four were teenagers at the same time. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) You talk about drama. Yeah. There there is no drama compared to four teenagers, three of which were female Mm. at one time. I think early on, you know, late eighties, early nineties, there wasn't the same, dare I say, the toxicity in parenting hmm. that I encountered later on. When when I was almost nine months pregnant, I remember reading a, an article in Christian Parenting Today, and you know the question was, you know how you know, tell us what you regret, you know, what are some things, if you could go back and do it differently, what would you do differently? And it was things like, I would go back, I would have more kids, you know, I wished we'd had more kids. There was, yeah, which, which I thought was interesting, but remember that was coming out of the eighties. That was before the quiverful movement. Mm -hmm. None of that was on the radar at the time. So, you know, a lot of people saying, I wish I'd had more kids. But the ones that really struck me were things like, you know, I wish that I had picked my battles. I wished I'd said yes more often so that my nose would would have more more weight when I had to say no. You know, people saying, I wish I hadn't made a big deal about them eating their peas. I would, you know, so strangely enough, you know, the end of 89, beginning of 90, the parenting message that at least I got was coming from a little more of a gentler, oh, you know, you you love your kids. I I wish I hadn't been so strict, so rigid. Mm -hmm. And that was great. That was right up my alley. That's that was kind of I'm I'm not a domineering person. I'm not when God was handing out the managerial skills, I must have been in the bathroom because I don't have them. And so get those. You know, I'm I'm a nurturer. And you know, my first daughter was born in 1990. A lot of the parenting information I got at that point was coming from La Leche League and you know, how to breastfeed your baby and love your baby. And We were in a church in Philadelphia um, that was more diverse. We were in a neighborhood in Philadelphia that was more diverse. And it there wasn't this buttoned up fly right sort of culture yet in that world. I mean, yeah, we had gotten the focus on the family magazine like everybody did. And I remember being really bothered by the fact that it seemed so white and so upper middle class. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in terms of parenting, it seemed to it seemed to be okay. I mean, it, 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 you know, and yet I remember when the, the, the culture wars really started was like in 1992 when Dobson started sending out the political letter saying that if Bill Clinton became president, the state was going to come after the Christian kids. And, you know, one day a Christian might open their door and there would be social workers to take their kids away from them. Mm. And it was so much, it was, I mean, at that point I was like, don't send me any more information. I don't need that. I didn't, I didn't believe it, but 
I have an anxiety disorder and I don't need to read that. It seemed like somewhere in the mid 90s, I encountered a cultural shift and it wasn't, maybe it was just the people I was around. We, we left Philadelphia and came back to the South. I, you know, I started encountering more of, of a circle the wagon separatist mindset. Do you think that came predominantly from Dobson or was it just kind of picking, picking up everywhere in the Christian? I think it, I think it was coming from everywhere. We, you know, and it may have been, I, I think a lot of that was politically from the whole culture wars mentality meant, oh my gosh, your kids are in danger. It is up to you to keep them safe. It is up to you to keep them from being, being, uh, influenced the by the world. Yes. Tainted, tainted, tainted by, by the world, corrupted, corrupted by the world. And I mean, I had known some people who had been very, very rigid, even, even in the early years. And, you know, it's always kind of awkward when your, your kid's doing the same thing as their kid and y'all are together and they're like spanking their kid every five minutes. And you're like, that just looked like something a two-year-old would do, you know. Some people had that very rigid mentality, but I didn't see that coming from the church at large at that point. What happened that when I really remember seeing it take over was around 1994, 95, I think it was 94. It was 94 when Growing Kids God's Way came to town. I remember that. Gary Ezzo. And it took over entire churches. And the first time it really, uh, that, that I, I encountered it was person personally encountered what it would do was I was sitting at my husband's church league softball game. And I had a four-year-old, a two-year-old and a newborn. And my two-year-old was whiny and didn't want to stay and wanted to get in the car and play by herself. And I wouldn't let her. And so I was doing what I thought James Dobson would be very happy with. I was not giving in to her and I was holding her kindly and lovingly in my lap without getting, you know, upset or anything. I was just being firm, but kind with her. And another mom in our church looked over at me and said, Hey, Jenny, have you heard about that new parenting program at our church? I think you could really use it. Oh my gosh. Jenny. I was absolutely crushed by that because I was doing what I thought was the right thing. And, you know, and from there really became what I would say a couple of decades of this, this personal wrestling, uh, this cognitive dissonance between what I felt in my heart and my gut and what I had learned. I mean, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family and there was so much I wanted to do differently and Mm -hmm. so much I wanted to teach my kids about unconditional love and them being their own separate person. And it's okay to be different from somebody else and all of that stuff. 
And there was such a dissonance between what I truly believed was the best for my kids and yet what this entire culture was telling me I should do and needed to do and had to do to be a godly parent. Mm-hmm. And that that set up a couple of decades of absolute, for me at times, absolute torture because mm-hmm. I I wanted to parent a certain way, and yet the pressure to parent another way was so, so intense. And yet when I would try to parent that way, I was just mean. It's like, I don't want to be mean to my kids. And did you feel like the the messaging was if you're not mean to your kids, if you're not like strict, that's probably not they didn't say be mean to your kids. They didn't say mean. They used you're not uh, loving them if you don't. Exactly. Exactly. Because the most important thing is to teach them obedience, first time obedience and cheerful obedience. That's what God requires of us. That is what I remember that. That is what you should require of your children. And that was, (laughs) that was a big one. And, you know, my, I didn't have compliant kids and I am so thankful I didn't have compliant <laughs> You're like, kids. I didn't get kids that were just do it. Because I was a compliant kid and, mm-hmm. and it has taken me so many years to get to where I'll stand up for myself. Mm-hmm. And I love that my kids have the spunk to, to say, wait a minute, that's not right. I mean, it's all these years I've, you know, yeah, it's easier to have compliant kids, but that makes them very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. and then just like you and I, in our study of like abuse in the church and like that compliance, when that's like ingrained into someone, they don't recognize toxicity in a church context. Right. They don't recognize the abuse in a church context. They don't recognize that certain they learn not to trust them, their own gut and their own heart. And, and they learn and they're programmed to only trust in authority, whoever that may be. The the authority was a huge issue. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and to me, that's terrifying because when you look at the statistics of child abuse, you know, and the statistics of child sexual abuse and how many kids are abused by somebody they know, often somebody in authority over them, and they've only ever learned to say yes to authority. Mm-hmm. And, and that that is truly terrifying. And what does that tell those kids about God? Absolutely. Oh, and I will, just, I will say from my own perspective, like, I was terrified of God. Oh, yes. Terrified of God. I did not, there was no like loving affection for God. It was fear. And I think of like my childhood and, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned like those cultural wars. And that's something that I'm learning about a little more because I was born in 85 and I remember a shift around that 1995, 96. And that was around the time that my uh, sister who is number five in a family of seven was born. And I remember it was almost like they tried one thing with the first group of kids and then they switched and tried to do something else with the uh-huh. kids, which was around that time. But then they tried to make up for whatever happened with the first group of kids right. already a little bit older. So I'm like 10, mm-hmm. 11 years old at that point. And I remember that shift. And I remember just like, 
just like a, a lot of fear, a lot mm-hmm. of just like, I was afraid to get in trouble. I was probably like you, like way more compliant. I was terrified of getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so I lived my life to avoid mm-hmm. getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. And if I think, I don't know if I'll have kids at this point, but I'm like, to think of my child living in fear of getting in trouble, like that like was yeah. the paradigm through which they, they viewed their life. I don't want my child. to live Right. Right. They're just there. It's like, Oh, something is wrong. Oh, right. something is wrong. But they're not listening to their kids. Like, you know, well, you know, and what, one of the issues that I, that I still see it, I, I saw in, especially in these churches was this, it's the whole original sin blown out of proportion and out of context like you're so born that, to evil and we have yeah, to so the that evil from your life there's no no room made for personal for individual wiring there's no room made for developmental stages mm-hmm. everything that is unpleasant to the parent is deemed a willful sin that must be disciplined. Mm. I mean, that's how you get people saying, oh, you know, don't pick up your baby every time they cry because then they'll learn to manipulate you. Mm-hmm. When we know that is how babies build trust. That is how they develop develop a healthy attachment to an adult. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, and, and you know, I, I heard you know, proof of that. Well, my baby doesn't cry anymore because I just don't pick them up. And it's like evidence has borne out how incredibly damaging that is Mm -hmm. to children. And yet that was the proof. Parents always, the child's needs should never come first. The parents, I mean, this was a straight as a parent's needs should always come before the child's needs. Mm -hmm. Um, Kids are, you know, they, they have play, playpen time and high chair time. And, you know, if you're, if your kid, if your very shy two-year-old doesn't say hi to a stranger, you discipline them for that. Because if you told them to say hi, that story, if you told them to say hi and they didn't say hi, they're being disobedient. Yes. And it's not, they're not allowed to be shy. They're not scared. It's like shed every every amount of discomfort and just obey. You are training them like you would a dog. Basically. Or you're, you're developing a robot. Basically. And that's basically what happened. Yeah. Exactly what happened. I mean, I had somebody once call me and it's like, Jenny, how do you get your, you know, that very sweet voice, Jenny, how do you get your kids to make up their beds cheerfully and neatly? Because mine just aren't very neat. Her kids were two and three. And I was Whoa. like, oh my gosh, what do you mean make up their beds? You know, I'm, I'm just doing well if they survive the day around here. <laughs> and but it was this very, it was, it was kind of raising kids is like a Christian boot camp. Mm-hmm. And I knew some families that ran it like a boot camp. There's one family that had adopted 10 kids and they made their kids run a mile every morning. And she homeschooled and, you know, the church just worshiped this family because they, you know, they, they looked the part of what every mm-hmm. Christian family should be doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember, and I, I'm, I'm putting some pieces together here too. And I've always 
I like my dad came from an abusive home and, you know, has a lot of wounds <laughs> from that upbringing. And I know that there was this attempt to kind of make up for his own lack mm-hmm. in, in his parenting and his own insecurities. Like I follow this book and I follow these rules and I get these kids to be exactly the way I want them to be. And it's a, it's a knot on his belt. Well, it's a, it's a way to control something in his life. And I, I've noticed that a lot yeah, of them, and they're young and they're vulnerable. And so you can control them and you can mold them. A lot of the them. most rigid parents I've ever seen came from homes that were very chaotic. And so what they do is they gravitate toward this system to fix everything. Mm-hmm. Like I need something, to, I, I need something where I feel in control and here it is. Mm-hmm. And the system, the problem with the systems is that they, they guarantee Oh yeah. If you do this, if you follow these rules, if you take these steps, then you, we, you are guaranteed this outcome. And then you have the, if, if you have the people who, who are able to do it all right, and those people become very proud and judgmental of other people. And, and then the especially people who- when people are like coming to them, like my parents, people would come to them and be like, how do we get kids like yours? Yes. Like, Ooh, ego boost. And I remember like I was part of the dynasty. I was firstborn daughter. I was yeah. the princess. I, uh-huh. I supported that. Like I, I liked being that you know, poster child, like look Mm -hmm. at, you know, to some extent. And then there was another very dark, dark side of that, that of course no one saw, but yeah. And I think, you know, you take the normal anxiety that any parent feels like any parent feels anxiety over raising their kid. And then you give them something that says, Hey, do this. And it's going to fix all your problems. And then bonus you're also going to be pleasing God. Right. It's a great sales pitch. It's well, I mean, to, to me, the two words that stick out from, from all of that are fear and control. Mm -hmm. You are first instilled with absolute fear of how horrible everything is out there and everything that can go wrong. And the eternal destiny, uh, destiny of your children is on the line. Mm-hmm. And then, but here's how to control it. Mm-hmm. And it's a, this is how you fix it. It's a lie from the pit of hell because you can't control it. There are no guarantees. Children aren't vending machines. And there are way too many variables in life to, to be able to control for everything. And it, even if you could control it all, you'd be creating your kids in your own image, not necessarily in the way that God created them to be. No, that's so true. I'm curious. So these culture wars started. And so you were around during that time or you were an adult during that time. And I'm curious because it seems like a lot of Christian leaders picked up on it and a lot of Christian teachers were purporting this, you know, trip and uh, Dobson, then then there were more extreme versions like Gothard. Pearls. 
And oh, the there girls. was the girls with their blanket training and just, I mean, abuse, just child abuse. Yeah. Child abuse that was celebrated. Uh, Sanctified child love. abuse. Yeah. yeah, which is so, oh, it's disgusting. What do you think? Because, I mean, there are certain people in that group that I would say, okay, they were an abuser. And so this was just oh, another way of just getting power and uh, getting accolades and having people support them and follow them. So there was some intentionality behind that. But then I think that there are others who were genuinely well-meaning and were coming from a place of genuinely wanting to do what God wanted them to do. Where do you think, why, yeah, why do you think it just caught on so fast? That's a good question. It's almost like an avalanche, you know, I mean, and, and not being, not being a historian, I, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure. I mean, that would, this would probably be something to ask some of, you know, somebody else, you know, on that front that, 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 I mean, I would love, I would love to read a book on what happened. Basically, yeah. I would love to understand it. I would love to understand it myself. Yes. Just what I saw. I mean, and my husband was a, a little bit involved in it and in that he worked for an organization that was really pushed for Christian education. That was a big thing. The whole, the whole getting your kids out of the public school and, uh, you know, it, it, it's almost, it's like a lot of these fringe ideas just came mainstream mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And I really, I, I, I don't know if it had to do with Reagan and the eighties and all of a sudden the Christians had all the power and then, oh no, here come these secular people. I, I don't know yeah. everything yeah. that happened. I am, I am not a historian. I just know what I experienced was, I, I also experienced a, an increasingly strong pressure to homeschool, even, mm. you know, not just when, when we started having kids, we fully expected to send them to public school. We, we wanted them to be able to be around different types of people and everything. And we had planned to do that when we were in Philadelphia and then ended up back in North Carolina. And we lived in town. We had intentionally bought our house in a very racially diverse neighborhood within the city limits of Asheville. And nobody in our church lived in town. They all lived outside the city. And so the people that sent their kids to public school were in the better public, better schools. But I, I, because of where my husband worked, they, they catered, they, they, it was a publication company for Christian schools and homeschool. Got it. So, you know, that's kind of was our world to a certain extent. And I knew a lot of people who homeschooled. And the first time I, I talked about possibly doing that, you know, Matt said to me, honey, the thought of you homeschooling our children strikes terror in my heart. <laughs> I love his honesty. But, and it's true. I'm, that is not me. I, okay. I'm going to be totally honest here. I don't like kids that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like my own kids, but I'm not a kid in general. Yeah. at all. I love babies. And that's how I got into trouble. 
because I kept wanting another one. Ah, because you just want more babies. One more baby. Not thinking they're going to not stay this way. Babies at some point. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when we, we were going to send our daughter to the public school half a block from us, but it was a lottery system and she didn't get into that one. And then people are like, well, you know that there's some, some Wiccan teach in the city school system and you could have a witch teaching your child. And then they said that the only way to be successful in public school is if you are there and you're on top of it and you're going toe to toe with them on all their curriculum. I'm not, I don't, I go toe to toe with people now, but I'm 57 years old and mm-hmm. at 32, there was no way. Mm-hmm. And I was also pregnant with my fourth child. There was no way I could be in there. And so I did homeschool our oldest for kindergarten. And then by first grade, we went ahead and put her in the Christian school. And it was like, this is one thing off my plate that you know, it was, and we got scholarship money. So, you know, it was financially, we were able to do it. But when we started in Christian school, it, it didn't seem so, such a weird thing to do. But I would say over the next 10 years, the pressure to homeschool became oppressive. Mm. There were, there were ideas out there that if you really love your child, you will homeschool them. There were, um, you know, you, don't you have to be in there, you know, and, and making sure that your kids are learning all the right things, you know, homeschooling mm-hmm. them was all about training them up and discipling their hearts and all this stuff. And I was, again, it sounded good on paper. Mm-hmm. I was complete failure. And all of that. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was glad to get through each day. And then by 2001, my husband lost his job and it's like, I got to go work. Yeah. And then I got the, well, you wouldn't have to work if you were homeschooling your kids, you know, Whoa. and, you know, or, you know, some mom would come up to, oh, you're a homeschool mom too, right? No, I'm not. Oh, and Whoa. And and it was, um, (laughs) wow. Like an in or you're out situation. Absolutely. It was, it was hard. And, you know, even whole churches, I mean, I'd heard that, that the whole schooling thing was dividing whole churches. Oh, for sure. I I remember that. I was, I was in a church where it, it got to a certain point you know, just as the demographics shifted where our kids were some of the only kids in school at all. Wow. Everybody was else was homeschooled. There was nobody in public school. And so, yeah, yeah, that was. Um, For the, just for the sake of time, I would love to kind of hear, first of all, like, I just feel, I just hear the, just the, I don't know, just the sadness that you have of this and of this experience of kind of being forced, maybe basically coerced kind of into parenting your kids against your own instinct. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of sadness there. And I, and you, I don't know, I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it kind of sounds like, like trauma too, like this trauma from this church uh, culture. And I would just love to hear like, where are you now with this and where are you with your kids 
And I know you have said that you have talked to your kids about this. Uh, how does yeah. that? I mean, one of the things that, you know, having grown up in a, in a highly dysfunctional home with, with a lot of trauma myself, you know, I've always felt that one of the things that would have made so much of a difference is if either one of my parents had come to me and apologized and said, you know, my dad, yeah, I mean, yeah, long story. But anyway, if either one of them had come to me and said, hey, I know I put so much on you. I know that there were unrealistic expectations. I know that I expected you to meet my emotional needs and that was not your place. And I am so sorry Mm -hmm. that I ever did that. And I want to, I want to have a good relationship with you now. It would have made a world of difference in our relationship. And, you know, I mean, we've been through a lot, you know, I, I officially ended up in the, with the proof to everybody that we were such horrible parents when we had a daughter get pregnant out of wedlock, which was proof that I absolutely failed. And yet I, I, the only things I regret is that I wasn't more loving. The Mm -hmm. only thing I regret is that I made too big of a deal out of things mm-hmm. when everybody was saying I wasn't making a big enough deal out of them. You know, when your husband gets cornered about the length of your daughter's dress at church. And I'm like, there is no way I'm going to endanger my relationship with my daughter over two inches of fabric. I'm sorry. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but even that I, I, I have apologized. I have apologized for you know, they, they don't feel as bad about us sending them to Christian school as I do. Mm-hmm. I think just because I, I do feel like they got some really damaging input there. It's funny because the, the, the head of the school was always talking about how toxic the culture is out, out there and you've got to protect your children. I was like, it's a lot more toxic on the inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and at least... And on the inside, it's all being done in the name of God. Mm. But um, I, I think I really regret not, I, I feel like in spending their, their childhood years beating myself up for the mom, I felt like I was supposed to be, but failed to be, I robbed them of the mom they had. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I go back to them over and over again. I am here. Any decision you make, you know, that is your decision. Nothing you do is ever going to change my being here for you, you know. And I feel like we all, we have, I have a good relationship with a lot of, with, with all four of them, really. You know, there's, there were years where I wish I could go back and do it over again, but at the same time, it has made them much more compassionate to people who don't fit inside the little Christian box. Mm -hmm. And I really love that about them Mm -hmm. and that they can articulate things. Yeah. I think that, that the teaching on sex was, was really some of the, some of the worst is that they were just given, you know, this is a big thing of mine is, is it, it's such an all or nothing thing. And that culture of y- you don't have sex and then you're married and you do. 
and no talk about the contingencies of what happens if you do. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I failed to equip my children in, in that way because your, your child having sex outside of marriage was the worst possible thing that could happen. So mm-hmm. if you even talk about a contingency, you're like giving them permission to have sex. Right. You know? Right. So, which doesn't make sense on this side no. of things, but um, it did at that time. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, when yeah, you, it, it, it felt like a sellout, basically. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, I guess, like, how do you how do you grieve that? Because I can imagine there's a lot of parents who feel the same way, and I can imagine there's there's some shame there, and. And yet you have grown so much and you have grown in your relationship with your kids and yes, you have regrets, but I'm just curious how, what does the grief look like for you? I think what's funny is I think right now, one of the hardest things is when I see parents who are being very rigid and I want, you know, and it just makes my skin crawl. You know, a parent, you know, talks about, oh, you know, somebody, you know, my child is in spiritual danger because they're behaving this way. And it's like, that sounds like a 10 year old kid to me, Mm -hmm. Um, but I can't say anything yeah, because I'm, I'm proof that we did it wrong in their eyes. The culture is still so steeped in a certain outcome Mm -hmm. that there's an inability to glean wisdom from people. You know, if, if you did it right, you had this outcome, but because you had this outcome, you didn't do it right. Therefore you have no wisdom to share with anybody. Oh yeah. And so parents now with young kids look at your family and say that you didn't have the right outcome. So they don't think that you have enough wisdom. Right. To offer them. It's like, oh, I don't want to be like you. You know, I mean, I've I've seen the fear in parents' eyes when I say something like, yeah, my daughter got, you know, had a baby at 20 out of wedlock and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And, and there's like this almost a sense of horror and, ooh, you know. Right. Ooh, I, I thought if, if, if I was in this group of people, that things like that wouldn't happen to me. Oh. oh. And um, that just... So, that breaks my heart. Oh, that just, that just breaks my heart. And yet, you know, yes, there is the grieving, but there's also, if I had had all the outcome that was promised to me, had I done it right, I would assume that the outcome was because I'd done it right. And I would probably be insufferably arrogant. Yeah. And instead I have a compassion for single moms. I have an understanding of the draw of intimacy and sex with young people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I understand how horrible it is that we equate their virginity with their value. Absolutely. And because my daughter was her, the, the father of her, our granddaughter, he was very abusive. And I, I have an understanding of all of those dynamics as well. And those are things that just aren't talked about in Christian circles. And, you know, 
it has opened my world to be able to relate to so many people. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. I love to be able to connect with people who are in these broken situations that aren't inside the tidy Christian box. They're, mm-hmm. you know, this is the real world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, if I want to be a representative of who God really is and the character of God and for my children and for other people, and that is a God of love and compassion and not one that will smite you if you don't jump through the right hoops. Well, that's definitely something to celebrate to on the side of things and not a, not a reason for what you went through, but just a redemption of what you went through. And I know just from the time that I've known you, you are one of the most vulnerable, open and approachable people. And I just appreciate how much you bring up these tough subjects, but then people want to engage you with that. Like there, it's not this like, Oh, we don't want to talk about that. Like people want to talk about it and you're willing to bring those things up. And I appreciate that too, just with all of the wisdom that you have gleaned through the years too, that I get to learn from you and then I get to interact with you. And so I'm grateful for your journey. I'm grateful for your story. And I wish I could keep talking to you for five hours. So we're going to, we're going to do this. You're going to have to come visit now that you're only a 10 hour drive. Yeah, 10 hours instead of across the country. Exactly. And I love Asheville. I definitely want to, want to see you in person sometime too. That would be lovely, lovely, lovely. Well, I appreciate the vulnerability so much. Thank you for talking about this. I have a feeling that this is going to be just a balm to a lot of people. And honestly, like, I feel like you're the only person that I've met parent in that generation who has admitted that they wish they would have done something different. I don't know any. Are you serious? Single one. Like, I think I've heard, Oh. oh, we made some mistakes, but every parent makes mistakes, but I've never heard a single parent, like in my parents' generation, admit to, I wish we hadn't done that. Like, I wish we, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. There was, there was so much, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much to the story, but, you know, I remember the, you know, it was the whole dare to discipline and faking your kid for this and this and this. And our youngest had it, it was pretty serious anxiety disorder that presented itself with agitation. Yes. Which came across as disobedience. Uh And And, you know, it got to a point where it's like, at one point I did, I recognized the terror in her eyes and, you know, and my husband were like, okay, you know, all the books say we should just jumping wrong. (laughs) Thank her. And I'm sitting here going, I remember feeling the same way. I can see this in her eyes. This is not disobedience. This is terror. Yeah. And it's all about parental discipline. I mean, I had two teachers that went to our church tell me ADHD is the result of inadequate discipline at home. Yeah. And I was thinking, I was actually talking to my sister earlier this morning and I was talking, I had an older brother and I had a younger uh, sister right under me and they got in trouble so much. Like they just got, and they got spanked so much. Mm -hmm. And I remember like watching them 
do the same thing that they just got spanked for again, like Mm -hmm. right in front. And it was always like, they're willful, they're selfish, they're defiant. Like that's how they were approached. Mm -hmm. But now that I know about trauma, Mm -hmm. they were traumatized Mm -hmm. and it presented as freak out, flail out. I can't control myself. I can't, you know, I don't have any, and I responded to trauma by shrinking and like making myself small. Yes. And so I just think, and I'm like, I was terrified of getting spanked Mm -hmm. and telling my sister on the way here, I was like, I know I got spanked. I don't have a single memory of it. I think I blocked it out because it was traumatizing for me Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. my siblings that were spanked like that. I'm just like, there was no room for let's sit down and find out what's going on here. Right. Because it's not sane that you would get in trouble for something and then immediately do the same thing again. Like that's not sanity. (laughs) If your explanation for everything is that willful sin nature. Mm -hmm. This approach of like, if we just do these right things, it'll go away. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, this, do these things, pray this much, Mm -hmm. do that, you know, it's just going to go away. And there's no room for complexity of humanity. And uh, I just, I just want to grieve, grieve for it because it's, there's so many people who are traumatized by that teaching. And so I'm grateful for you being open about it because I just, on it, like I said, I haven't, I haven't heard anyone ever say that, like <laughs> ever be, I'm just not saying that they don't exist and that they're not regretting it. I just don't know anyone. So I'm so grateful. It's very healing for me to hear you say it. And yeah. And I wish I could keep talking to you, but I got to go back to my day job, but your <laughs> details. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure you do too. So I'm so grateful and we will connect again. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So have a good day. Yes. You have a wonderful day too. Have a good afternoon and thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org slash support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.